Uh, the rest of you I'd invite to open up to Luke chapter 1. I witnessed something really cool standing in the back just a few moments ago. Uh, one of you walked in, and here's what you did. You just sort of walked in, you like this. And that really is, there's a, there's a prayer, oftentimes a room like this is called a sanctuary. And that really is a prayer of ours, that as we put things together and say, how should we use this hour or so together, that there would be a deep sense of just sort of a, a deep sigh, and that this would be a component of your week, um, really where we're meeting with the living God. And I think of a few categories. We have some... We have some um, some some students who are home from college. If if you're there, just raise your hand. I already already see you, so I'm going to call you out. Will and Lindsay and Trent, uh, welcome back, you guys. Um, super good, super good to have you guys. Um, probably finals are over, and so there's like there's a deep sigh, like there's joyful nodding on my right side over here. Um, how about parents that receive their kids back who've been away? Some of you are going to be picking up at airports and meeting uh, and gathering this coming. You know that's the anticipation. And there's sort of a sigh uh, that's, that's there as well. Recognize every Sunday that we gather as a church family that people are just walking in here with all different reasons to sigh and sort of catch their breath and, um, and all of that. And so as we open the word this morning, as we, as we talk, as we celebrate communion, as we sing, as we're with each other, all of that, I pray this would be um, truly a, a place of sanctuary for you. So at any given time, one of the things that people catch their breath over and sigh deeply over is dealing with doctors. And I sincerely hope you aren't dealing with doctors right now, because that probably means you're fairly healthy and not needing to make big weighty decisions. But if you are, my prayer and hope is that you have entrusted yourself to the good doctor. We looked at this last week. That, that we, we love and praise God for the medical community. We praise God for the advances uh, in knowledge and all that we have but that we entrust ourselves to the good doctor. These two words mean a lot, and they're sort of the foundations that the whole Gospel of Luke is built on. Why good? Because good shows off the character of Jesus, but more than that, Jesus claimed to be God. So the deity of Christ is seen in his character. Jesus is approached, and he answers this guy who says, good teacher, he says, why do you call me good? Doesn't deny that he's good, but then he makes this statement. He says, no one is good except God alone. So as we go through Luke, we're looking at the miraculous, uh, miraculous conception and birth of both John the Baptist and Jesus in these weeks right now. As we go through the entire gospel, we're seeing the deity on display. And doctor refers to his mission. Luke 19.10 says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus knew why he was here. He was on a rescue mission. He is the good doctor. Last week, we looked at a priest and a, pe- and a peasant. They both said exactly the same thing. Zechariah, hey, your, your aged wife is going to become pregnant. How can this be, he says. And Virgin Mary, peasant, out in nowhere, Nazareth, you're going to be found to be with child by the Most High God. How can this be? Remember, how can this be? And how can this be? Both said from completely different places. One from a place of doubt and one from a place of trust. These birth announcements give us some great truth handles. One is this. God is super excited about pregnancies and birth in the womb. He's present. He's sovereign. And he thinks it's a really big deal 
We think birth announcements and gender reveals are a great thing. Amen to that. We got that from God. That's an instinct from God himself. Secondly, he likes surprises and he likes upending conventional wisdom. Here's what we can see from this tale is this. That age and gender and your hometown, hear me, do not prevent you from being used powerfully from God. Younger people in this room, I love that we have a church filled with younger people. Younger people in this room, hear me. Do not wait to grow up to think God can use you in earth-shattering, life-altering ways. In fact, listen to your elders, because they will tell you some stories of how God continues to use children and teenagers and young adults. So you are not too young to be used from God. What a great response of Mary. I'm your servant. That's my identity. Let it be done to me according to your word. Whatever you have for me, God, that's what I'm going to walk in. For you olders in the room. Okay, I'll say it. Us olders. All my kids are like, you're in that category. Hear me, you are not past the age of being used by God. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, think of how deeply this was to their identity. You are past the baby-making years. In a very tangible, real sense, you're past being productive, Elizabeth. And to wrestle with that and to walk in faith. It says they were devout. They were faithful. They were following God's very commands. Older people in the church remain wide-eyed with wonder in worship. God loves to counter conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom says there's a certain uh, expiration date for your productivity. Many places in our society don't esteem elders. They shuffle them out of sight, out of life, out of the way. That's not the church. Don't believe it. Uh, by the way, conventional wisdom is not a Christian. Conventional wisdom says these things, and God loves to come in and blow up conventional wisdom and blow up stereotypes and change things. The church is designed to require contributions of the young and the old together. The older to pass on to the young uh, the, the, the ways of the faith, right? They're to pass on an imagination and a lifestyle that welcomes and looks for and anticipates the word of God. How can the old do that if there are no young in the church? How can the old do that if the young just completely disregard the elders? How can this be accomplished if the old are stodgy and set in their ways and annoyed at the color of hair or style of hair of young people coming to the church? Church, we know this. This goes wrong in so many different directions. If you're relatively new with us, let me encourage you with some news. There is a vibrant community of young people who are walking in stirring kinds of ways and faithful kinds of ways that I, I hope you pick up on and catch. And there are grandparent-aged people in this room that are far from retired in their faith. You know, we had to look no further actually this morning than on stage behind me in our worship team. James, raise your hand just for a second. Uh, ben, where are you? Other Ben. In the back. So I'm just going to pick on two extremes. But here they were on the team. We don't think anything of that. That's a work of the Spirit, that we're just all together doing this together in the right spirit. So church, let me just say this. 
with the Lord's authority. Keep it up and press into this and guard this because that's a good thing and it's a work of the Lord. All right, we're going to finish up chapter one of Luke today uh, by talking about musicals. Anyone got their jazz hands ready? Uh, here's what's true about musicals. You either love musicals or you despise musicals. You notice there's not a lot of like, I don't know, I haven't really made up my mind. People love musicals, or they just hate musicals. And here's what happens with Luke chapter 1. It almost feels like a musical. There's song that keeps breaking out right in the middle of the storyline. Some of you have been duped into going to a musical. You didn't know it was a musical. Your significant other or your friends didn't tell you because you wouldn't have come. And you're there, and you start feeling it. You're like, there's a song coming in this movie. I don't want to watch this anymore. But you're stuck, so you have to endure the musical. We're going to look at two songs uh, from two different people, um, these two that we talked about, both of whom said, how can this be? And they break out into what's called the Magnificat, that's the Song of Mary, and the Benedictus, which is the prophecy and song of the priest Zechariah. So Baby's the Musical. Let me just, let me just put your mind at ease. I always think the text... And the sermon and worship service should match. So if the text is really heavy in judgment, I shouldn't be up here telling tons of jokes and doing puppet shows unless it serves the text. This is a musical text. I'll just put you at ease. Those who hate musicals, I am not going to break out in song. At least I don't think. If I do, it's unscripted and it's just, it's just coming from the spirit. So, so that's, that's where it's going. So you can kind of breathe easy for that. But let me tell you about the first chapter of Luke. When you look at the first chapter of Luke, it actually sets a trajectory for the rest of the gospel. It is filled with prayer. It's filled with praise. And it is filled with Luke trying to show us. He's, he's taking pains to show us the work of God, the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just attribute things to just happening. He's, remember, he's not reporting current events. He's letting us in on, uh, on the activity of the Spirit. So we are introduced this morning in our text to some really, really big themes. And it's pretty interesting because uh, you can be with people who are sort of humming along, singing truths. I went to Bethlehem on Monday night, and I got to, I got to see our new security team, Ben and uh, Jameson and James Humphrey were there as guards. And you're here singing worship to the king. And you're here with all these people and... And you wonder, like, not everyone has a personal, living, commitment, vibrant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And yet, here they are singing these giant truths that are introduced in Luke chapter 1 and 2. Here's one of the truths, that God is triune. We call it the Trinity. That means that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit, three in one. Here's how we see that. We see God the Spirit at work. Luke takes pains to show us that. We see Jesus, the Son of God, being conceived and born and sung about. And then we see, by implication, if not by specific mention, the Heavenly Father of the Son of God at work. So the Trinity is on display. Here's one more, the virgin birth. Do you know the virgin birth of Jesus has been attacked uh, for centuries? And different times Christians have tried to sort of jettison this. And I use Christian 
in a loose term. I think there are some who are genuine believers that really, that really are saved and, and, and they wrestle with these things. And I think there are others who have said, we can't believe in these things and we know better than God. And so we will rewrite the script and rewrite what's going on so it can fit our preconceived notion or our ideal of what that would be. Good thing that never happens today, right? Man, we've got some, got some truths today on the table. And we're no different than any other century of Christians that need to say, are these, are these the word of God? Is this the word of God? Are we meekly receiving the word of God? Or is the pressure around us? Think about when sort of the, you know, the, the enlightenment, curious term, the enlightenment comes on and, and there's all these wonders of science and advancements and there's just sort of huge breakthroughs and technology and all these things come onto scene. And the Christians of that day and age say, maybe now is the time to ditch, now that we know even more fully how babies are made, to, to ditch this whole virgin birthing and not, and not die on this hill. Let me just have you consider a couple of things. Number one is this. What is Luke's profession? Thank you. If no one, if no one had that, we would just, I would just preach last Sunday all over again. Luke is a physician. There's a certain pride to modern people that we think we're just so much more brilliant than people that came before us. Mary, Elizabeth, and Dr. Luke, hear me, they were not ignorant of how babies were made. They didn't think there was a stork that flew in. They didn't think they magically materialized. They may not be be as advanced. They don't know the cell level. They didn't have uh, ultrasounds, right? But they were not ignorant of how babies are made. And yet consider this. Dr. Luke is setting out an orderly account. And at the very front, he includes these two science-breaking events. Of a miraculous birth from an old woman and a miraculous birth from a virgin. Again, there's a sense to think that <laughs> silly, silly people back then. He knew this is, a, this is something to deal with right up front. I think a better term is to say science so far. Science so far thinks this. That means our knowledge gained up to this point thinks that this is true. God has the right to blow up conventional wisdom. He has the right to steer things. He has the right to give us leaps and bounds in knowledge and understanding that, that come in and raise new questions and actually build new foundations to go, wow, that's sort of what the Bible's been saying all along. So Luke isn't ignorant of how babies made are, are made, and he puts this spectacular, miraculous event right up front to deal with. Here's a thought. Would you expect anything else? If there is rumor that a Messiah, God become man... Is, is, is on the loose in the town, would we expect anything different than a miraculous circumstances that mark the arrival of that? I'm reading a great little book uh, again. I read it, I think, for college or something, but it's by J. Oswald Sanders. I would recommend it to you. You can't have my copy because I'm reading it, and I'm not that developed in my sanctification yet, so I'm going to keep it. You can use it when I'm done. Uh, thanks, Pastor. Uh, it's called The Incomparable Christ. Here's what I love about it. It's in short, bite-sized chunks. I just read a little bit each morning as part of my devotional. And it's not really in line with Luke, but I just thought, what a fun sort of companion resource. And he writes this about the virgin birth. Listen carefully. If, as science demands, every event must have an adequate cause, then the presence of a sinless man in the midst of universally sinful men implies 
a miracle of origin. Such a person as Jesus demands a birth as the Gospels record. The how of the birth becomes believable when the who of the birth is taken into account. The how of the birth uh, becomes believable when the who of the birth is taken into account. Only in isolation from the unique person of who has been born does the virgin birth create difficulties. Here's what I want to say about attacks on the virgin birth. An attack on the virgin birth is really just an attack on miracles. What are miracles? Miracles are things that don't cooperate with conventional wisdom. They are science thus far breaking events. And if you don't allow for the supernatural at the beginning, where do you stop? Let me give a hint for those who haven't finished the gospel. There are some massive problems for those who would deny the supernatural all through the gospel of Luke. His orderly account is chock full of the supernatural and ends with the raising of the dead. So ultimately, the incarnation is one of those big truths. The Trinity and the Incarnation are not just big truths because they're so foundational to what we believe and stand on as Christians. They're big truths because you can never get your arms around them. That's part of the mystery and wonder of this season, isn't it? That that year after year, there's a weird thing in pastordom that pastors don't like preaching on Easter and Christmas. They think those are two of the hardest sermons to preach. And I don't think I'm above them. I just don't track with that. I don't get that. I love preaching on Christmas Sunday. I love preaching on Easter. The mystery of the incarnation, this big truth, we will never get our arms around it. But rather than shrink it into what this little brain can comprehend, let's let tensions sit side by side in Scripture. Let's set our science thus far says and what the Scripture seems to really clearly say and let's work through the the, the tension of that. Many of you have had your faith built right here. Instead of chucking one for the other, ah, let's just blindly trust it, who knows? I, who, let's not ever get into that. Or just saying, man, this doesn't match up with what I'm told and what I'm taught and what seems to be sort of the, 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 the consensus among people that I run with. And so let's chuck all of this. There's a faith-growing component um, in between the two of those. All right, babies and music. Do you see why? I, I love this text. I'm, I'm excited about this text. I love both of those things. God works in the ordinary. Almost 400,000 babies will be born today. There's a great line in a Dave Barnes song. It says, it's a common little miracle, I know. But for those of you who have had a baby, not for those of you who have been born, because we've all been born, we don't remember it. But for those of you who have had a baby or watched your spouse have a baby, it, it, it's, it's a common little miracle, but, but it just blows your world up and, and alters things. So God works through a really common, universal, ordinary event, the birth of a baby. And God not only works through channels that people often overlook as ordinary, the birth of a child, the human body, but also does the spectacular through channels that people would dismiss as impossible. Of all the 400,000 babies born daily, there are two categories that never give birth. Super old women and virgins. Let me correct myself. Not never, 
but very, very, very infrequently. So much so that we would look at it and say, that's convention breaking, that's a miracle. And that's what we're looking at today. So I want to briefly just sort of like keep up with the storyline, but really this morning we're going to focus on these, on these two songs. I'm just going to read them in, in, in full. So uh, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57. Uh, my daughter Tegan, she drew me a biblically accurate um, nativity scene after my sermon last week or two weeks ago. What we have is, um, is we have Jesus' cousin, uh, Luke, on the scene. Now, we, we, don't, we don't necessarily know that he was there, but there's family there. There's the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the baby, John the Baptist, there and present and celebrating. And it's just kind of a cool thing. It's a little bit like anatomically correct dolls, you know? You see one of those for the first time, and you're like, ooh, like, just give me the made-up version. <laughs> like, this is what I'm used to. This is what I want. This one, this, I don't want this this real. And my, my challenge to you would be this. As we read through, in the middle of December, a very, 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 very familiar story to many of us, let's sort of lean in and press into... Instead of the Messiah made up in our mind that we're comfortable with, let's let the disrupting real Jesus come and invade that space and push on places that, that, that maybe aren't so comfortable. It's the anatomically correct baby. It's, it's the story that says, this, this is a real story. This isn't just a cutesy, glitzy thing. No one really ever posed all sort of quasi-facing the camera with the baby in the center. This is, this is something that really, really happened. And so as we sing and as we pray, as we take communion, as we read this very familiar story, let's do that. Luke chapter 1 verse 57 says this. I'm going to skip Mary's song because we'll come back to that. Now the, the, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy on her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise, their, the, circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after, fa- after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring as to what he wanted him to be called, and asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them, upon in their, uh, laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will, be, will, will, will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Let me take just a couple of moments. And just to ask you, what, what stirs in you? We, we've, many of us have read this over and over and over. How many devotionals have been written on Luke 1 and 2 around the Christmas story and Christmas season? What jumps out to you? What, what stirs questions? So is there any commentary on this? I, I just want to sort of open that up for us before I move on and make a couple of brief comments, and then we'll look at these two songs. Anyone? It doesn't have to be deep or profound. Um, the neighbors were afraid. The neighbors were afraid, Okay. Mm-hmm. And what was that about? Like, what, what, what was that about? Why, why is mom and dad so clear-cut that it's John? The angel. Yeah. 
Right? They, and now again, he didn't, he didn't believe it first. He didn't, you know, he, he didn't just receive that openly. But at this point, they've had time to kind of percolate in things. Like, his name's John. Actually, the way it reads, it reads, John is his name. <laughs> like, this, this is settled. By the way, isn't this great? Like, anyone else have any family tension around the naming of a baby? I mean, this, this is beautiful. This would play really, really good. This Jewish family and mom's doing it. And they're like, no, 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 Zechariah, that's the name. And then they pull rank on her, basically, right? Let's go to the dad. Dad says, John's his name. So fear came on them and praising and wonder. Yeah, what else? Anything else? Mm-hmm. And if you go back to Elizabeth's song, it, it's already beginning. Many, not just you're going to rejoice, many are going to rejoice at this child. And at the birth, a few months later, this prophecy begins to, to come to life in their, in their eyes. Yeah. Anyone else? Les? He's mute for at least nine months. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so what... What appears to be the point where that little spanking is, is lifted, that little timeout is lifted? What is it? It's on the eighth day. Remember that they're devout people. They follow the Lord. They've been faithfully doing these things. That's why they're waiting to the eighth day, because that was what was prescribed. So they were following the Lord down to the letter. And I would have thought, I mean, again, I don't even know why, I would have just thought it's, it's when the baby's born. It's not when the baby's born. The baby's born, and John's like, whoa, I still can't talk. It's also interesting, they signal to him as if he can't hear also. They signaled to the father. So day one goes by, day two, we're super pumped to have a kid. I still can't talk. Then the eighth day comes. Now, now watch this. When his tongue is finally loosed, what comes pouring out of his mouth? Praise. We're going to look at that. This, this prophecy, this song of Zechariah comes pouring out. That's not a given. Parents, I'm sure this doesn't happen in your home, but it happens in my home. You give a child some, some little thing. That you're trying to train them up. You're trying to say, let me inflict a little bit of pain on your time. So you can, so you can see that, that, that there's a lesson here and I, I want to train you up. You could put a child on time out. You could tell a child to go and do this thing. And sometimes they come back and they've had that time and there's just deep repentance. You're the best, Dad. And thanks for drawing hard lines because you love me so much. I receive my discipline. I give you honor. I'm going to be just like you. All right, that part's made up. Um, but also, hypothetically, it could be that the second that child is sort of off of restri- uh, restriction in whatever that is, sheesh, what was that for? Does that sound familiar? If not in your kids, in your own heart. That was a little extreme. Gosh! Parents, what does that make you want to do to the child? <laughs> We're doing triple time. You think that was tough? Not sure that's always the best. God is such a gracious father. So it's not just a given that once the tongue is open, there's just praise that came pouring out. Here's a little heart check for you. Some of you have let me in. Many of you have not. I don't know the pain and suffering that you're in right now. 
But hear me, it is not outside the view of God. He's not allowing anything. Nothing crosses uh, into your life without first gaining approval from, from, from him. Doesn't mean he causes all things, he uses all things. But let me ask you, is your heart growing colder or warmer toward God in your discipline, in your pain, in your suffering? Some have never even stopped to ask or wonder, am I being frustrated in this thing because, God, you're trying to spare me from a terrible decision? We know that all pain is not is not discipline from God. We live in a cursed, fallen world. That's why we rejoice. Some pain is just meant to say, God, come. Thank you for not making me comfortable here. This is not my home. I'm camping. Can't wait to be done with this. Sometimes God uses pain in a very distinct, very uh, poignant way. Here's a great prayer that I'm not sure if someone taught me this or if I just gathered this out of my own pain. God, help me gain all the, humi- all the humility understanding and patience from this pain as quickly as possible. Amen. It means this. I'm on the anvil, and I'm just getting hammered right now, God. If I crawl off too soon, just in my own spirit, I'm running from this, I'm going to end up back here. You're still going to have some work to do. Would you give me the grace to endure this, and would you please hurry up? God can take that and sort of morph it into the more proper, theologically correct thing that I meant, which is, God, all in your timing. I don't always say all in your timing, but that's what I genuinely believe. All right, let me, let me move on. Um, before actually looking at the songs, though, why music? Why musicals? I'm not making a case for musicals. I'm making a case for music right here. Luke records four songs in these first two chapters, sung by a pregnant teen commoner, an elderly priest, a host of angels, and Simeon, which we'll get to shortly, who is this aged anticipator of the things of God. The power of song is incredible. We didn't just sing the song, How Can I Keep From Singing For No Reason. I can sing when I lose, I can sing when I win. There's something really powerful about music and singing. It delivers messages that stick in a totally different way than the spoken word. It has this way of sort of augmenting and enhancing prepositional truths uh, and, and, and principles that like sink deep into the soul. This is why in three and a half minutes, I can hear a song and go, wow, I was just moved more in that three and a half minute song. That was more inspirational. That was more confirming about God's presence. That was more instructional than a sermon I just heard. And I just preached the sermon. That's the power of music. It also delights and surprises us. There are times you come in here. There are times you're driving down the road. There are times you're at an event and you didn't expect to be moved by the music. I know some of you are super stoic and good and trained at keeping it very internalized. But there is a physiological response that comes with music. It's so powerful. Your heart rate begins to beat faster. What's that all about? You you get chills just up and down your spine on your arms, like just out of nowhere. You get a knot in your stomach because some line in there actually stirs up a deep longing that's gone horribly wrong for you. I've told you this before, but I could be driving down the road on the way to a meeting thinking not about anything else, and a song will come on and and flip a switch in me, hit me in a way that that just is surprising. 
God surprises and delights and stirs and bypasses sort of the rational logic part of us with music and the arts. It's also cross-cultural. Language is obviously often a barrier, and music tends to bridge that. Think about the opera singer. You don't have a clue what that's about, but just her or him emoting those things, you're moved by that. You're sort of drawn into that. For good or for bad, music's memorable. That's why we teach kids. We teach kids truths we want them to do, uh, whether it be the ABCs or some you know, book of the Bible song. And it's why you could be singing to this lyric that you, you know, went to a dance in high school and you re- you're singing this lyric. You're like, I don't even believe that. Wait, wait, stop. I don't want that in my head. For good or bad, lyrics stick with us. I think there's a good example for us to follow, by the way, church. God is moving among us. He is speaking and showing up in signs of his power, his intentions, and his nearness. And in the scriptures, we see people, just like us, breaking out into praise. Time is given in this orderly account by the physician Luke to stop and write a lengthy song and verse. The response to God, the worship, the reveling in what is happening. He takes time out of this this story to say, let's ponder these things with the neighbors, with Mary. Let's ponder these things. Let's treasure these things in our heart. Let's respond to what God is doing. Here's my question for us. Do we have time in our days and weeks for this? Do we carve out time and room in our busy lives and story for an outpouring of response to God? We had some technical difficulties this morning that were frustrating to me and the team. And in spite of that, no words, some band shift at the last second, in spite of that, we were able to come and just do our part as congregation and just, God, help me center my eyes and focus on you. Help me just to sit in this. And I, I love that we have this space and time to respond to the Savior of our souls. We're going to read this in just a second. I want to strike the right balance here uh, with these two songs. I'm not going to dissect these songs because sometimes you take art and you dissect it into its pieces and you kill the art. And, and you, you just go, man, you know, if, if someone were performing a song and then I were to stop and say, pause for a second, did you see how that phrase was turned? Did you see how that connects to the first part of it? Okay, keep going, keep going. I mean, you're like, just sit down and shut up. I just want to hear the song. So sometimes you take the pieces, you dissect it out, and you just kill the living thing. It's ripping the flower apart, finding all the little nuanced parts. I don't want to do that this morning. At the same time, sometimes we want sort of a field guide that says, hey, um, as we go take a look at this waterfall, as we go hear this poem read, let me just tell you a little bit about what's going on so you can just take note of these couple of things and then you ha- have at it and just take a look at that, that art in the museum, that statue, whatever it might be. So let me just say this about both these songs. Both of these songs are filled with Old Testament references. I could give you the number, but I'm going to leave that up to you. If that excites you, go find the number. Filled with Old Testament references. Here's what that says. Zechariah the priest and Mary the peasant both knew their Bible. They had this holy imagination that was filled with biblical imagery. 
It was redeemed with the pictures and lyrics of God already because they had been steeped in the scriptures. Both of these songs see the coming Messiah as two things, not just victory for the down and out, the vulnerable and the needy, but also defeat for the enemy of God's people. So what we see in both of these, these are revolution songs. These are predictions that there's, there's some turmoil coming. Do people give up power easily? Not in your life. These are revolution songs. Both see what God is doing and give him praise, calling out specific things about his character. And both are conscious and sing about it that their son, their baby, is going to play this really key role into it. I don't know how God did that, but they're aware of this. They're aware that, wow, my son is going to play this key role. The Magnificat, why is it called that? It's the first word in the song, in the translation. It just means to enlarge, to make magnificent. So let me read this, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let me read now. You can skip down to verse 68. This is Zechariah's response. Again, eight days into his baby being born. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by his mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him in all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And as the child grew and became strong in spirit, And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let me invite the band to come on up. Here's where we go from here. Both of these babies are not the same. 
They're both brought about in miraculous ways. Luke goes into great pains and details about the, the very specifics of their birth. But from here, the story is going to diverge. It's clear that one baby is what this whole story is about. Don't feel bad about little baby. Little tiny baby in this story doesn't want you to feel bad. In fact, as he grows, and the hand of the Most High is on him, not the hand of Herod, the hand of the Most High is on this little tiny baby, and his sole purpose in life from his own mouth is this, that he must increase and I must decrease. That's what I'm all about. I'm all about you seeing the big baby, not little old me. I'm just the forerunner to this. This baby who must increase would go from being delivered by Mary to delivering Mary. We've got a song that may be familiar to you, but just brings us into this little ordinary event, a baby being born, but like no other. As we sing, we just sang this amazing song, Hope for All. The tagline for our story, our our whole gospel, is hopeful healing for all. We see this in Zechariah and in Mary's song, that there was this long wait There was this 400 years of silence from the end of the Old Testament to now, and now sunrise is hitting us. So as we sing, lift up your voices, enter into the music, and let it speak to you as you speak to God. I want to specifically read from the Bible that Mary had. I want to read from the Bible that Zechariah the priest would have served and ministered under because this is what uh, was compiled up to that point in time. Psalm 26, the first two verses, really speak perfectly around this theme of communion to test my heart. So let me just give you invitation right now. Do what you need to do to make sure you're not spilling things, but quiet your heart and mind. We want to give you a moment here in this spot to just take a deep sigh and test where things are at. Think about God, the creator we just sang about, the great I am, and your relationship to him. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, And try me, test my heart and my mind. Just in the silence of this moment, test my heart and my mind. Take time to ponder these things in your heart. And now we're going to participate in what this psalm goes on to say, which is to use our mouth out loud, just in the spirit of prayer. You don't even have to look up if you don't want to. To proclaim thanks to our God, to speak about his wondrous deeds. It says, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud. Telling all your wonder, wondrous deeds. Right now, church, just in a spirit of prayer, would you lift out loud, say it loud enough for the assembly to hear the wondrous deeds of God. Give him thanksgiving. The psalm finishes this way. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. 
Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Isn't it so powerful to consider the great reversal? We no longer make our way and make preparations to go be near to God. God came to us. Where's the holy habitation that he dwells? Isn't the spirit of the risen Jesus Christ in every believer? 1 Peter 2 says, As you come to him, you yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that's what we sing about. That's what we celebrate. Let's sing.